Hello, and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Devorah Goldman. And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. In each podcast, Devor and I interview the authors of one of the essays we've published in our journal. Today, we're pleased to welcome Jarrett Dieterle and Shoshana Wiseman, who wrote the lead essay for our spring 2018 issue on the licensing logjam. Jared is the Director of Commercial Freedom Policy and a Senior Fellow at the R Street Institute. And Shoshana is also a Fellow at the R Street Institute, in addition to being their Digital Media Manager. To start off, why don't you both tell us a bit about the work you do and what prompted you to dig into the subject of licensing in this essay? Shoshana, you want to start with uh, what you do? Yeah, sure. So I do whatever I want. I have the greatest job. (laughs) I manage digital media for our street. So that's email marketing, social media, and lots of other kinds of stuff like that. And I love it. But I'm also obsessed with occupational licensing reform among some other policies. So they kind of let me nerd on this stuff. So um, Jared is very gracious in letting me nerd in his area. And I'm also technically a fellow because I've been nerding so much. Um, I love licensing reform so much. So um, when I got to our street, Jared, Jared and I were like, uh, want to do this stuff because we both love it and are also obsessed with Randy Barnett, whose theories kind of underscore the importance of economic liberty. So, um, so yeah, I do what I want. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, I uh, am the director of Commercial Freedom, as you said, so I kind of oversee all of uh, our street's work on, um, you know, regulations, uh, occupational licensing, of course, being a, a facet of that. Uh, we do a lot of stuff on alcohol policy, postal policy. It's kind of a, a whole hodgepodge of different things that uh, we do that that tangentially affect uh, businesses and how they operate. So occupational licensing obviously fits in there. Um, and, and as far as uh, writing this essay, we I think me and Shoshana actually it started uh, as a, um, a shorter form uh, article we wrote for National uh, National Review, uh, not, not not to be confused with National Affairs. Um, and we uh, we were we were I can't remember what prompted us on it. We had read some interviews with some uh, federal congressmen I think talking about some of their different legislation, and we started talking and we kind of all of a sudden had two or three different ideas about what the federal government could do to address occupational licensing. And we looked at her like, should we just do, you know, like what, here's five things that the federal government can do. And so we did that. And then once we'd done that, we felt like we had a lot more to say about it because it was kind of a new topic and it could have really been expanded upon. And so we uh, uh, proposed the idea to uh, to you all. And that's how this uh, essay developed. And just to start off with, um, so what exactly are licensing rules, um, you know, for listeners who maybe haven't heard about it before, don't know much about it, and how do they affect Americans today? So it's you want your doctor to be licensed. When you go to the doctor, it's a good idea that they have a license that says this guy is a doctor and not like on The Simpsons, Dr. Nick, who probably isn't a real doctor <laughs> or might have been licensed somewhere else. Um, but when you get your hair braided, I'm not so sure you need a license there. So basically, a license is just a certification from government that um, that you're approved to do a certain kind of work. And the means to get there vary from not very long to years and all different education requirements. And um, 
Um, and again, doctors are at one level, but we focus a lot on why are these things licensed and why ought they be licensed. And this paper specifically focuses on the national level because, as you can imagine, a lot of this is licensed by the states. Um, so they have their own role there. But there's, um, there is there is a role for the national government to solve this really big problem because you'll see the most ridiculous things licensed, which um, I'll get into later, some of the worst examples. But, um, but hair braiding or even cosmetologists where sometimes it's – there's um, there's more licensing required than there ought to be, and um, and it's across all different kinds of professions. Um, lawyers are licensed, which most people argue is a good thing, but even the level there is debated sometimes. Um, a, a lot of stuff under cosmetology, whether it's barbers and stuff like that, um, manicurists. Um, also, sometimes you have to have a license to mow someone's lawn, stuff like that. So um, so it's it's basically um, government approval that you're allowed to do your job. So you'd like to restore some sanity? Yeah. Common sense. Basically, because um, right now it's um, it's pretty crazy. If you look at some of what's licensed, like milk samplers are licensed. Not sure that needs its own special license. Um, there, there's um, also um, nutritionists and dietitians, which is various levels of, um, of basically uh, helping people figure out what they want to eat and the healthy lifestyle for them, um, and when and the problem with licensing too is even if you like the idea of a certification, you can always go and get that certification. But this criminalizes doing that job without a license. And again, that might make sense in the case of doctors, but in other cases, do we want to send people to jail for not having the right license to manicure to uh, give manicure stuff like that? Yeah, no, definitely. I think Shoshana hit it hit it well, and, and obviously the reason it matters is that um, when you create any kind of a government barrier um, that you have to uh, kind of clear in order to practice your profession. Uh, Obviously, you know, economics 101, it locks people uh, out of the labor market then, uh, people that might not either have the resources, if you're talking about like a licensing fee, a case of cosmetology that Shoshana mentioned, uh, you have to go to cosmetology school uh, in most states to get a cosmetology uh, uh, license, and that's really costly. It can be eight or $9,000 for that. Um, and then also there's just the time burden and the opportunity cost that goes into that. So who does it impact? Obviously, it impacts the lower income uh, uh, kind of marginal populations. It might be a single mother, for example, a single father that are trying to raise a kid, but are also trying to get you know certified and licensed in some occupation. And they can't do it. They don't have the money or they can't, you know, they have to help their kid get home from school and do uh, his or her homework instead of, you know, going to cosmetology class. So that's the real impact it has. And so it prevents people from joining the labor force and then rising up the labor force. Definitely. Um, so before we dig into more of the substance of your piece, what is the weirdest or most unlikely profession you guys have come across that is subject to licensing rules? I, I would say fortune tellers, um, <laughs> because usually, you know, the, the, the idea behind licensing is, oh, we'll make sure that they're good at what they do. How are you making sure that fortune tellers are accurate? I mean, like... I, Assuming you believe in it, there, I'm sure there's some sort of art that can't be measured by government. Um, that one makes me really angry. And it's I think there's one in California and there's also definitely one in Maryland. Like, come on. Some quantitative analysis of how accurate the predictions are. Yeah. And that doesn't even yeah. happen. It's basically like you just fill out a form and then you're a fortune teller. So what good does that do? <laughs> well, fortune tellers, too. It's like if, if you don't believe in it, then then why are we you know trying to have a license for to make sure that you're like telling like non-fraudulent fortune tellers? 
compelling advice. And then if you do believe in it, there's the whole issue of kind of if you believe it's an artistic component that you should be deeply uncomfortable with the government being involved in, I think uh, most people would be. And, and also the mind, right? So that's kind of like that's the last amazing. yeah, the last realm that like should not be, be touched by government. Uh, and and so, yeah, it's it's uh, it's really it's, it's probably the best example of it. Also, there's there's other fun ones, of course, like uh, Frog Farmers is like a popular <laughs> one. And, and some of the yeah. Um, yeah, some of the upper Midwest uh, states in Minnesota, I think uh, South Dakota. Some of those ones are like it's mostly just kind of like a de minimis fee. So the, the burden isn't as high. Okay. Um, another really good one that, that we've written about before, a lot of people have written about before, um, is Louisiana's forestry license, too. It, again, that one is actually not only is it a crazy license, but it, it, there's actually evidence and proof of it uh, actually really hurting real people uh, and locking people out of the out of the labor markets. There was a, a, a forest. Yeah, floristry mm-hmm. uh, flowers, like arranging flowers. Oh, yeah. Forestry, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, not forestry. There's forestry licenses. Too. <laughs> uh, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But Louisiana is the only one that, that flower arranging needs needs a license. And and there was you know a, a woman uh, is a high profile case, uh, Sandy Meadows, uh, that was practicing forestry in a grocery store and ended up uh, the grocery store had to fire her because she didn't have the license for it. And uh, she basically was never able to get back on track and get a career uh, after that and ended up yeah dying in poverty basically. So yeah, that 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 one always always sticks out to me. It's kind of one of the known ones that everyone mentions, but there's real like smoking gun evidence of it like ruining someone's life. And I'll add in on on that. Um, that was the case that got me into all this. I remember when uh, her lawyer, Clark Neely, who at the time was at the Inst- Institute for Justice, now he's at Cato. I remember him telling the story, and I remember thinking, this is so wrong. Um, another fun slash ridiculous fact about that license is the, the old form of the license under which uh, Sandy had trouble. Um, it was uh, Part of it was you had to make floral arrangements, and it would be judged by licensed florists, who, one, obviously don't want competition. Two, how do you judge, like, what makes it bad and maybe someone wants a weird one that's okay but um the pass rate for that exam was lower than for the louisiana bar exam so it was harder to become a florist than a lawyer which is just still so ridiculous yeah <laughs> wow um and yeah so obviously this is something that conservatives and libertarians talk about a lot uh, the problems with licensing but you both also know in the piece that this is a bipartisan thing that people have both raised issues about um i'm going to quote here from an obama administration report from 2015 uh quote Licensing restricts mobility across states, increases the cost of goods and services to consumers, and reduces access to jobs and licensed occupations. Um, so, guys, if both sides, the left and the right, agree on this, um, why is there this logjam that you talk about in the piece? Why has nothing been done about it? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, it's not one that uh, usually breaks down as much along party lines, um, particularly at the state level. It, it's an issue of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs, uh, another you know kind of core economic principle where the people that benefit from licenses are a very concentrated industry uh, interest group oftentimes. In the case, uh, for example, of, of dentists, um, and, and just to borrow one example, in teeth whitening, uh, a lot of states say that only dentists can do teeth whitening. And and uh, that non-dentists can't do that. And so the people that benefit most directly from that, of course, are dentists because they get to charge for the teeth cleaning services, uh, teeth whitening services. And the the people that don't benefit from it um, is, yes, some uh, amount of people that might be interested in doing teeth whitening and providing that service. Uh, but mostly it's the consumers of that state which could get uh, most likely cheaper teeth whitening services if they didn't have to go to a dentist. It's mm-hmm. more costly to go to a dentist than it is, for example, a dental hygienist or someone who, uh, you know, dental therapist 
therapist, for example. Uh, so it, it, it's a classic example of kind of the, the people that um, are getting the most benefit oftentimes uh, are the most interested in protecting and keeping that license in place. And a lot of times, even beyond that, they're also the ones that are partly staffing the licensing boards. That's the entity in every state for pretty much every license that actually does kind of the, the, the details of getting the license, issuing it, deciding who can qualify for it. Uh, and if you look at, like, for example, dental boards or, uh, you know, state bar associations or, or whatever kind of licensing board it might be, uh, almost always they're, they're stocked and staffed primarily with people that actually work in the industry and have already licensed. So mm-hmm. as Shoshana alluded to earlier, they have an economic incentive to kind of limit the amount of competition that there is and kind of create a, an economic cartel, mm. uh, if you will. So that that's why you go to states and you try to, we, we do it as part of our job every day. We go and try to, you know, get licensing reform passed in different states. And, you know, sure enough, you're going to be running into very often concentrated interest groups that are very invested in stopping that and have a lot of sway in state capitals. And cosmetologists yell at me a lot. I don't like it. They're mean. <laughs> um, but uh, but up as part of that, too, because um, because the divide isn't Republican Democrat. Um, the opposition also isn't Republican Democrat. So both parties introduce terrible legislation on this. Um, both parties fight to stop it. Um, so it's good that it can be bipartisan, but unfortunately, that's part of the problem as well. Yeah, absolutely. And in the piece, you mentioned a variety of legislative solutions at the federal level you're interested in, including the recently passed New Hope Act. Would you speak a bit about that and some of the other bills you're interested in? Yeah, definitely. So um, good news on the New Hope Act, which is one piece of legislation that basically ties federal funds um, and, and allows allows states to use it more flexibly for education and workforce development. So part of that naturally, and, and I'm glad that they included this, can be part of reducing licenses, making sure that um, what's needed stays, but what isn't needed doesn't. Um, so we were really happy about that. Um, and actually, since we, um, since we wrote this, there's one more piece of legislation that was introduced that we're kind of mad we didn't think of. Um, Senator Rubio and Warren, um, an odd team, but it worked out great, mm-hmm. uh, proposed legislation to stop the loans licensing issue, which in super short is basically if you fall behind on student loans in a bunch of states, they'll take away your license to work. So um, if you fall behind on student loans because you were sick and you're a nurse, um, then they can take away your license to be a oh. nurse. And that's the job they know best where they're presumably going to make the most money. So it stops them from you know, catching up on loans because natural things happen, whether it's sickness or, or unforeseen costs, stuff like that. Um, it, it In a lot of cases, it really amounts to debtor's prison. So um, that legislation hasn't moved, but we were really excited that Rubio and Warren introduced it. Um, there hasn't been movement, as uh, to my recollection, but I think Jared can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think there's been movement on anything else, but we, we like all of the other proposals as well. Yeah, and, and one of the other ones we, we mentioned um, was the Allow Act in, in our piece, which which did a, a lot of things. Uh, um, it, it, first of all, created a model for D.C. on kind of what would be uh, best principles for, for occupational uh, licensing, and, and it, allow, it made it so the courts sh- couldn't just defer to uh, the, the licensing boards and saying that, hey, this license is really needed to protect public health and safety, and it required the courts to actually say, wait, is that true? And it also did things like help uh, military spouses if they transferred across state lines. The military spouse issue is a really big issue. It's becoming a bigger issue because there's so many uh, permanent change of service orders when you're in the military, so you can get shipped from Florida to California at the blink of an eye. Your spouse goes with you. All of a sudden, they were licensed to do you know, occupation X in Florida, and they can't do it anymore in, in California. So 
the Allow Act allowed them to continue to do that uh, only on military uh, installations and military bases, which probably could be actually expanded beyond that. And we're hopeful Congress does do that. But that was another feature of of the Allow Act. So it, it kind of drew upon different enclaves of federal power in clever ways, uh, in, in a way that didn't uh, trump uh, and and trample on states' rights. Uh, so that's why we thought it was an interesting uh, model for it. Um, and then the last one we mentioned, uh, which we'll probably get into a little bit more, dealt with uh, antitrust uh, immunity. Um, and it was called the Restoring Board Immunity Act. And uh, it, it, as I said earlier, the uh, a lot of the licensing boards are, are stocked by people that work in a particular profession and oftentimes uh, operate in ways that are very protectionist. And a lot of times that kind of behavior is not allowed under antitrust laws, federal antitrust laws. That's the purpose of having them. Uh, but there's an exemption. Uh, and again, I think we'll get into a little later for, for uh, state governments or quasi-state entities. And uh, and this uh, bill would have uh, addressed uh, that issue. So as Shoshana said, these aren't really moving uh, a ton right now. The, the New Hope Act was probably the uh, most uh, modest of them, I guess you could say. But we were just happy that something happened at the federal level because there, there's not been a ton of movement in Congress, uh, really with anything, of course, but, but particularly occupational licensing. Um, I wanted to mention something else at the federal level. You guys mentioned the piece. Um, talking about Veterans Affairs, uh, scope of practice reforms, where I believe, you guys could correct me, um, this would allow nurse practitioners to provide some health care rather than just primary care doctors, which maybe um, you know would be cheaper and increase access to care. Um, could you talk a bit about those reforms? And also, I think there was some pushback to those as well. And talk about that and also the obstacles that um, licensing reform might face in the future. Mm. Yeah, uh, uh, definitely. Shoshana can, can chime in if I miss anything. But uh, the uh, Department of Veteran Affairs uh, obviously has a lot of nurses and healthcare professionals that work within their uh, network uh, and their agency. And they instituted a reform uh, several years ago, which expanded the type of healthcare services that advanced nurse practitioners could provide in the Department of Veteran Affairs. So what does that mean? It means that the nurses were allowed to do more primary care activities, prescribing drugs, for example, uh, certain kinds of drugs. Uh, and that is very beneficial because it, again, bends and lowers the cost curve uh, for uh, healthcare because instead of having doctors do all that stuff, which is very expensive, doctors' times are expensive, you can do it with nurses, uh, advanced nurse practitioners. And so that's a, a popular kind of uh, scope of practice uh, reduction of limiting the scope of the license. And so the Department of Veteran Affairs did it. Uh, it was very contested. Uh, at the time, this maybe has been superseded since then. It had the most uh, publicly submitted comments of any proposed uh, uh, rulemaking change in federal history. Again, it, that's probably been uh, superseded uh, since then. But but it was very controversial. A lot of doctor groups opposed it. Uh, but we, we think it's a good thing. We think that it allows uh, more service providers to provide more services and lowers costs for patients. And we think it's a model that, that states should adapt uh, to. And, and and not even just with you know nurses, but also uh, there's there's you know dentists that work in the federal government, whether it's the Indian Health Service or the uh, Department of Veteran Affairs. Again, uh, you know dental hygienists. And therapists can do a lot of things that dentists do. You don't have to have dentists doing everything, like teeth cleaning, for example. Sure, there's some things that only dentists could do, maybe like filling a cavity or something. Uh, but but there's you know other things that that uh, would would probably be easy for for non-licensed dentists to do. So that was that was the reform that they pushed through uh, at the federal agency uh, level. And we felt like the federal government should explore more opportunities to do similar things because it has a ton of agencies and has a ton of contractors that work for it that has influence over. Uh, it, it, I think when you add the the contractors, we figured and the, the agencies together is like 7% of the federal workforce uh, has some connection to federal government employment. So they, they have a huge sway over a huge chunk of the workforce. Yeah, exactly. 
And I, I would also add in that um, that basically if someone's qualified to do something, government shouldn't get in the way, even within itself. So if nurses are trained to do things, they shouldn't be stopped from doing them, which is basically mm-hmm. what it comes down to. Um, and also, um, I, I spoke at a conference uh, last year, late last year, and the, the second um, round of presentations after mine was basically a, a lot of data that shows that it's okay for nurses to do this stuff, that if you look at the data, um, it, it's it's fine. And even, um, you know, part of the good thing about uh, opening this up is that it can create more data so we can look at it and say, has quality gone down? Has this created any problems? Or if it's all fine, maybe other states should think about opening that up too. So, um, so the federal government as an employer just has so much opportunity there. Okay, so here is a quote from your piece. Um, The American Bar Association has estimated that 32,000 state laws concerning occupational licensing contain what are called good character provisions, which, broadly speaking, allow state licensing boards to consider applicants' criminal records when deciding whether to grant, reissue, or revoke licensure. So what is the problem with good character provisions, as described here, and how can they be misused? Um, they're terrible. Good moral character provisions. <laughs> there are no good parts to them. They're terrible. They're awful. They need to go away forever. Um, <laughs> I didn't know this before working at R Street, but basically good moral character provisions, basically they don't mean anything. And arbitrary law is used to hurt people. It's not like arbitrary law is there for government to just be chill with people. We know better than that. But basically, these provisions say that... Um, that licensing boards can deny a license or reissuance to someone without good moral character. What does that mean? Nobody knows. It's not defined anywhere. Um, So that basically allows for lots of arbitrary denials of licenses. Um, It's really frustrating. And of course, there's a natural criminal justice reform tie-in. But good moral character, can. it's really up to the board. So it allows for boards to to deny in an arbitrary, uh, sorry, in an arbitrary way, um, licenses to work. Um, It's really frustrating and um, and I know that the criminal justice reform community has been really into it. Um, there, there's a big case that um, I'll let Jared talk about because he wrote on it um, as this kind of provision actually gained a lot of prominence because of um, a, a Trump related case. Yeah, yeah, actually good moral character or good character provisions are, are in all kinds of licensing laws, almost in every one you dig up in, in a state, uh, including even we discovered uh, if you have a restaurant a liquor license, there's often a good moral character provision in it. So Unsurprisingly, given some of the uh, heated uh, partisanship uh, in, in our nation's capital, uh, a group of, of uh, citizens tried to get the uh, Trump Hotel uh, liquor license revoked because they had a good moral character provision. Their argument was that the president didn't have good moral character, and they <laughs> cited many uh, reasons that they thought so. And, and so, yeah, we wrote uh, with one of uh, my colleagues, actually, in, in the criminal justice team, uh, John Haggerty, that uh, that actually was not a good use of the good moral character clause because— <laughs> Yeah, it, it, uh, uh, it once you start using it to as a political weapon, basically, it becomes even more problematic, and it already is problematic mm. because it's it's affecting a lot of uh, uh, ex-convicts, people that are trying to reintegrate into society, as Shoshana was saying. And uh, just before I forget, one thing I should have mentioned also is that um, it, you know that I can understand that certain crimes might prevent you from performing certain jobs, um, se- uh, certain kinds of sex crimes you might not want working with uh, children or or stuff like that, but um, basically. 
basically there's a, there's a lot of crimes where it doesn't relate and even where it, it does relate there's problems there was this case of a woman who had once been a prostitute she was getting her life back on track looking into becoming a radiologist but she wouldn't have been able to because she was a prostitute and that was a sex crime so she was prevented from that so even when you know this is arbitrary enough but even when it's not so arbitrary there's still problems that stop people from rebuilding their lives and getting to good jobs and um and there's lots of data that shows that the key to keeping people out of returning to prison mm-hmm. is um getting them jobs mm-hmm. so um so that the good moral character clause is just one piece of a huge problem there I know you both also mentioned the piece, uh, ban the box reforms. Is that an answer to some of these issues with the good character provisions? Yeah, I, I think it's one answer. Mm. We um, we mentioned it because it's an interesting idea. So essentially with, with uh, ban the box, it, when you're applying for employment, usually the governments that have enacted it, it's been for public employment, government employment, they will not require you to immediately disclose uh, you know, a criminal past, for example. You can apply to the job. They defer the criminal background check component of it until later in the process after they made the initial decision on whether to hire you. The idea being that if you have, that when you, as soon as you see the red flag of someone having a criminal background, you're just going to toss their application in the trash can maybe and not really give them a fair shake. If you can see the whole context of the person, uh, then it first and say, hey, this is the person we want. And then you learn that, you know, 10 years ago they had uh, some misdemeanor uh, thing that they, that they did wrong, then you might say, well, we're going to overlook that because the context here is clearly a person's rehabilitated their lives and is, is qualified for this position. So uh, the federal government, uh, uh, through some executive action uh, in the prior administration, uh, had implemented that for uh, federal agencies. And we had talked about uh, in our piece expanding it to, to contractors as well. And, and hopefully state licensing boards could, could look at that, whether that's a good model when you apply for a license. Uh, another model, actually, has been to accelerate, the, which is interesting, the, the criminal uh, uh, identification or criminal background check to the beginning um, just to kind of give people a yes or no answer right away. It's like, hey, is this criminal pass going to disqualify me from the license? Because that'll save me a ton of time and a ton of money. I don't have to go and worry about applying to it and go through all that. So there's different models on how to handle it, whether you delay it or you accelerate it. But I think that all of them are, are important would be would be helpful. I think that the real fix, uh, as Shoshana mentioned, is, is, is the hard work, which is what legislators don't want to do, okay. is going through and trying to figure out what crimes, specific crimes, uh, should disqualify you for a specific job. So if you, you know, again, the child care example is the easiest one. If you have someone who has a background of child molestation, that would be on the list. But if you have someone who committed, you know, a misdemeanor level fraud or something, you know, uh, and maybe you could have a, a time period attached to it too, that would not be on the list. That, that I think is the ultimate fix for it to try to really decide. But, uh, you know, ban the box and or, or, you know, other models are, are kind of good points that I think would help us get towards how to deal with people with criminal pasts because we shouldn't just be icing them out of the labor market uh, from the get-go, which is what ha- what is happening now. A nuanced approach. It's challenging. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's hard work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Work, work isn't fun, so that's part of it. No, but um, but I think Jared said it perfectly. And and it's, it is a hard dilemma because, um, you know, it, decades of tough-on-crime talk, um, you know, it, it's easy to, to rhetorically talk against this stuff. But when you look at the data and you look at keeping people safe requires getting them jobs, you want to be able to maximize that potential there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so segueing a bit, we're still sort of talking about the same thing, but um, you mentioned the Federal Property and Administrative Service 
Services Act, which grants the president significant leeway in the federal procurement process, including licensing requirements among federal contractors. So how could executive use of that law also help reduce licensing requirements? Yeah, so the president has a lot of sway uh, over, he's been given a lot of sway under that congressional act over government contracting. Uh, you know, time to time you'll see this come into the news. Uh, the Obama administration, you know, implemented a form of paid leave for family leave, for example. And so, you know, people debate about whether that's a good idea or not. But it's generally uh, understood that the president has a lot of leeway uh, in that area. And so we kind of uh, thought that, hey, they could, you know, look into licensing and contracts. Uh, we there's, there's examples you see out there. Part of the issue is it's difficult to even know how many federal contracts have licensing requirements, let alone problematic licensing requirements. The reason being that no one studied it, and we advocate in our piece that maybe GAO or GSA, some government agency that deals with uh, investigations or, or government contracts, would be well-suited to actually be the one to look into that and figure it out. But there is examples, anecdotal ones, that we've ran across in the past. An example we used was uh, a federal court, say, in Michigan, and there's oftentimes security guards, for, of course, for courts, and they are usually required to have a security guard license, which is a thing. And they can only have one from Michigan, for example, not from across the state in Ohio, and that doesn't really make sense, uh, we argue. So there's just, we think that there's a lot of potential uh, low-hanging fruit there that is, people don't even really know, though, the whole scope of it. So the first step would be figuring out what, how many of these licenses are out there, and then I think that the, the president would have a good argument that he could tweak some of those requirements. Uh, and ideally, eventually, Congress, of course, would codify it, too. But, yeah. And stuff like that is great because it, it helps on the state level in that um, first, you know, the, the data and then the reforms and then the data from those reforms so that if you reform uh, um, the, that licensing requirement or the many others like it, then you'll have data saying, really, do you really need them to have that, that uh, license from our state? I think the one from the next state over should be fine to even... Um, um, you know, if they if they decided just for whatever reason not to have a license at all for a security guard, if that caused no problems, then the state would be under pressure to mm-hmm. reduce those requirements too. So, um, so it's low hanging fruit that can, you know, it, it'll serve a lot of good there for um, for people um, pushing licensing reform. In part because also the boards, uh, the licensing boards are often kind of opaque and don't always release their data like they should. So, um, if there's some federal data there, that that would be helpful. That'd be useful. Hmm. Great. Okay, so we've talked about um, licensing with respect to Congress and the president. Uh, let's talk about the courts for a bit. Uh, so Parker v. Brown, this is a case you guys mentioned, a key case that affected licensing and it produced the state action doctrine. Uh, what is that doctrine and how has that affected licensing uh, from what you guys have been studying? Yeah, it's actually a case involving raisins, which second only to... <laughs> so innocent. Sec- yeah, second only to milk is probably the most litigated uh, Supreme Court cases throughout our nation's wow. history. There's even a, there's the takings case recently. There's raisins too. It's always raisins. Um, but yeah, uh, it, it was, uh, this is a long time ago um, in the, uh, you know, several decades ago in the 1940s, there was uh, legislation, of course, uh, during that kind of uh, New Deal era uh, time that allowed different raisin growers to kind of uh, work together under the auspices of the state of California, I believe it was. It actually might have been the federal government. They were in California and allowed them to uh, set the prices for raisins. And so this was kind of collusive activity uh, that that they were doing because they were kind of dictating what 
the market price was for something. So that was challenged. Uh, again, our federal antitrust laws uh, very often uh, target activity exactly like that. They don't like businesses getting together and deciding how much something should cost, because usually that does not redound to the benefit of the consumer. And so that happens. They challenged it. But the that was the first of a series of cases that basically carved out an exemption for anything that was happening uh, by state governments or by uh, uh, quasi-state governments uh, in that case. So it, it basically uh, introduced this principle that when when the government was doing it, it was okay. And that makes that makes sense to some degree. I mean, obviously, you could you would have very little economic legislation in some ways if if you could bring constantly bring cases for the for the government. Because oftentimes they're explicitly intervening because of what they view as a market failure, or mm-hmm. uh, to try to do something that, that explicitly may not be pro-market, but they think that there's overriding other public interest reasons to do so. And different people can debate about that reasonably, of course. Uh, but yeah, so once the state action doctrine, it was called, was implemented. Uh, evolves over time, like all legal things do. And so what does that mean now? Uh, State licensing boards are operating under the auspices of state government. They're quasi-government entities. And so they have an exemption. So when they do collusive things, like they decide that only dentists can whiten your teeth, then they are exempted from an antitrust lawsuit. Whereas if private businesses did that, they would have the feds knocking on their door tomorrow. So, Hmm. And, And I guess I should mention that that may be changing. Uh, the uh, North Carolina State Board of Dental Examiners uh, is a mouthful case uh, <laughs> versus the FTC actually involved a, a FTC antitrust enforcement action against the North Carolina Dental Board for exactly what I just said with teeth whitening, only allowing dentists to do it. Everyone thought, oh, state action doctrine, like this is a snooze, this isn't going to go anywhere. Um, but it got all the way to the Supreme Court and ultimately ended up being uh, the Supreme Court agreed that their, uh, these licensing boards didn't automatically acquire for uh, a, a uh, didn't automatically uh, come under the state action doctrine. Instead, um, they needed to have kind of active state government supervision, or there needed to at least be uh, a, a tweaking of the way that courts reviewed the licensing board's decisions um, to make it appropriate for them to kind of qualify for the state uh, the state action exemption. So uh, that's kind of the the newest. Uh, uh, thing that's happened, the newest uh, update kind of in the, in the legal field. And, and we're kind of waiting. There's now been some follow-up cases challenging other licensing boards under antitrust laws. And so it's going to be really interesting where that develops. It could be a real game changer as we move forward. Hmm. Um, so you mentioned a few things uh, beyond that, that the FTC might do to combat some of the more onerous licensing regimes. So what else could they do to, to really get involved? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, we've actually, I guess, me and Shoshana have met with FTC staff a, a couple times over the years, and, and they're very interested in, in licensing issues. They can do many things beyond just bringing in enforcement uh, actions, as you, as you said. They also have uh, research and advocacy powers, which sounds ambiguous, but it basically means in practice that they can uh, you know, host uh, events, uh, aggregate research. They can also file what are they call uh, advisory uh, comments or advocacy comments that allow them, a state legislator, this often happens, will send them a proposed bill or legislation and say, hey, like I don't know about the economic effects of this, FTC. And can you weigh in on it? Because the FTC has a staff of trained economists. Most state legislators, a lot of them are part-time. They don't have a lot of expertise in uh, very nuanced issues, uh, oftentimes especially with economic issues. So the FTC can weigh in, say, is this anti-competitive? Uh, and where, where does this uh, does this make sense? Does it not make sense? And so that's actually happened a lot at the state level with different licensing regimes. And so we kind of argue that that should continue to happen and more of it should happen. Um, and potentially even kind of expanding the FTC's ability to do that might be a good 
good idea because, again, the, the bandwidth and capacity of state legislators is very low, so it allows them to oftentimes succumb to interest group capture and kind of just do what the licensing boards tell them to do or the uh, wannabe licensing uh, boards uh, want them to do. So having that kind of independent watchdog is very helpful, and the FTC has Try that turn it ability. into a more permanent solution. Right. And they have the Economic Liberty Task Force, too. I don't think it's been at quite as active as it once was um, under chair, Chairwoman um, Maureen Olhausen, who was my favorite. I just <laughs> wanted her to stay in that role forever. When did she finish serving? Oh, gosh. Um, a couple of months ago, I think it was formalized. But um, but the fact that she was going to be replaced was in the works for a while, mm-hmm. which is too bad because she, she was really, really great. Um, but she was like the dream chairwoman for this. She was really the model as, as FTC, as head of the FTC. Yeah, she, she really cared about uh, occupational licensing in particular, and that shows the importance of agency leadership, right? So mm-hmm. having having that locked in long term or, or making it more systematized within the FTC would be a good thing, whether it was a particular office doing it or locking in the right leadership and funding for it is, is really important because it, it was really emphasized for a while. And I think it's still something the FTC ca- staff cares about, but they don't necessarily have the same champion kind of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did want to ask you guys, uh, there's a bit of a debate in the conservative community and the originalist legal community about whether it's appropriate uh, for the FTC and courts to act in this way. I know uh, you mentioned the case with the North Carolina Dental Board. Um, so just as Alito, Scalia, and Thomas all dissented from that decision, I guess raising concerns about whether that was infringing on state sovereignty and kind of the, the state's right to make their own laws and the people's right to make their own laws. And I think you guys answered this up in the piece, but could you speak to, I mean, are, are there concerns about whether the courts are being too political here um, and what should be a legal question? And how would you address those concerns? Yeah, I don't think there's a chance of them being too political. Uh, I think it, it it's a disagree, it's a legal disagreement uh, at, at the end of the day, um, and and there's certainly uh, is something to be said for uh, the the critique that that those justices uh, had uh, about it. I think that as, as other legal scholars have looked into it, of course, and also you know that are operating under the banner of originalism and libertarianism and conservatism, and feel like it is not uh, uh, against. Uh, 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 originalist tendencies. Uh, I think that uh, the legal scholars, Timothy Sandifer, put it uh, really interestingly when he was looking at it. Uh, the problem is that antitrust laws, have, uh, we've already like inserted the federal government to such a high degree in our nation's economic legislation, and they exert such control through the antitrust laws that it's a little bit silly to now kind of come in and say, oh, uh, but, you know, the, the state action doctrine should be preserved because we, it's already like the ship's almost sailed kind of, I guess, is what his point was. Um, that still not might not be an answer to, to the legal issue, but it might mean that the court should go back and if they want to really get originalist, maybe go back and look at the antitrust laws, right? So that's uh, it'll be a little bit more controversial. Hmm. Uh, but but yeah, so I, I think there's there's good arguments on both sides. There's smart, conservative uh, originalists on both sides of, of the issue. Um, and there's people much smarter than than me that, that study it. But but I think that um, I think that the way we look at it is the federal government's already involved in this area and therefore it doesn't make sense to just kind of immunize state governments and allow them to do whatever they want and not be subject to federal law. I mean, there is obviously states should have rights, but also there's the principle that the federal government, where it operates, it's supreme. And if it's going to be supreme, it has to actually be supreme. That's the supremacy clause. And that's that's a core part of, of, of our constitution too. So there's good arguments on both sides, but but I think that uh, it's not it's not a clear-cut answer. And, and I think that there is a uh, an argument to be made from a constitutional perspective perspective that, that is in favor of, of, uh, of using the FTC in this way. 
That's a fascinating debate. Thanks for speaking to that. Yeah. And it would be interesting yeah. if these cases continue to percolate how the new, I mean, now we have two new justices that both right, fashion themselves exactly. originalists, yeah. right? So it'll be yeah. interesting to see how they would weigh in on this, where they would come out if the case would even come out the same way. And again, I think this is going to continue to percolate at the lower court level. And I will not be surprised if another one of these cases comes to the Supreme Court. And we'll see. A justice like Gorsuch may look mm. at this differently than than a Kavanaugh or a Thomas mm. or a Scalia. Mm-hmm. So, sure. Especially because Gorsuch is perfect. So, you know. <laughs> a Gorsuch fan. We'll, we'll remember that if he rules against uh, uh, yeah. Maybe not. Uh. Yeah. Do you have a favorite Gorsuch uh, case or speech? Or- oh, my gosh. Everything. He had this one case. I, if I remember correctly, it, it was his Demaya concurrence, where he, like, gave shout-outs to criminal justice reform and occupational licensing reform. And I'm like, did you write this just to me? I love you so much. It's an art street hero there. Yeah. Have yeah. you guys interacted on Twitter at all? No, I wish. Um, I bother his clerk sometimes. Nice. But he's, um, I mean, the, yeah, for me, it's his views on the Ninth Amendment, where I'm like, oh my gosh, when um, when Ben Sass asked him what it meant, and he said it means what it says, which is the title of Professor Randy Barnett's paper on the Ninth Amendment, I like lost it. I was like near tears, like this is the greatest moment. Um, Jared always hates that I'm always inserting that into everything, but, um, but I love all the unenumerated rights stuff and Gorsuch for championing it. <laughs> the risk of sending two inside the beltway. We actually uh, were at a restaurant once, and me and Shoshana were meeting some people, and actually he was sitting like two tables away from us. Oh, nice. Shoshana like, kept being like, can I go over and talk to him? I was like, oh, I don't know if I would just go over unintroduced, so we ultimately didn't. But now I think we both regret it that we That's, didn't. Yeah. <laughs> That's a tough call. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I, I couldn't pay attention you the whole meeting. You have to live on the edge sometimes. Yeah. I like had so much trouble paying attention. I'm like, it's not Gorsuch. And then I saw it was. I'm like, oh, my gosh, Gorsuch. That's exciting. That's cool. I don't think I've ever ever seen a Supreme Court justice at a restaurant or at a sure, public. Either. Yeah. yeah. Which I should keep my eye out for them. Yeah, it happens more than you think. You just have to kind of know. You what, have to know what you're yeah. looking for. I saw the entire uh, Scalia family. This is really weird. I don't know why we're getting into this. Uh, the, I saw the entire Scalia family was post his death at a uh, bluegrass concert, actually. Oh, oh really? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the, they're normal people. They live everyday lives. They do everyday things. So. That sounds like fun. Sure. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, you also discussed the uh, Small Business Administration's Office of Advocacy, and uh, you guys suggested that the FTC could develop a similar institution. So what would that look like? like um and also i guess what would you say to folks who would be concerned about funding another federal office um, I'll actually let Jared start on this one. Yeah, well, as Shoshana was saying, the, the, the agency leadership matters, and so this would be a way to potentially lock in a, a organizational, as, a, as an organizational priority, the need to address licensing and other economic liberty uh, issues. The economic Liberty Task Force has been great, but if you created an actual office that would do it, then that could be something that was locked in over time if Congress passed legislation, for example, to do it, and also maybe appropriated specific uh, money that went to that and couldn't be use. The way the FTC's funding uh, works now is it just goes in a lump sum to the agency, and the agency leadership can decide how to use it. So that can be used any way that they want, and so it can be subject to the whims of, of leadership. And so it'd just be a way to systematize it. We know, we're very cognizant that it's never a popular argument in conservative libertarian circles to have another government agency, like office within a government agency, and advocate for specific funding for it, maybe even more uh, modest funding for it. But our argument uh, is, uh, and, and this you see this in some other areas of, of 
of government too. But oftentimes, if you can find a discrete area of government, some government does good things and some can be helpful. And if you find a discrete area like what the FTC's Economic Liberty Task Force has done on licensing, if you increase that a little bit, it can actually have the effect of shrinking the whole. And I think that's something that oftentimes gets lost. Uh, Congress is another great example of that. Congress, uh, we, our colleagues at our, uh, our street often argue they should have more resources. Um, so people are like, well, that, that's going to be more money for Congress. But it's such a, Congress's money is such a blip on the radar screen of what the executive branch money is. And if you empowered Congress with more resources, then it would become more powerful and would help kind of fight back and potentially shrink and counteract the executive branch. And so I think that sometimes people kind of miss the forest for the trees. And we feel like that's a version of that. And maybe thinking more uh, deeply about what the FTC could do and how it could grow and take on a, a real ownership role of licensing is something that has not been done and, and mm-hmm. should be. Yeah, since coming to our street, um, that's something that my mind's changed on. And our street's actually changed my mind on, on quite a few issues. But um, but coming here and, and realizing how sometimes growing government a little bit to shrink it a lot can be really valuable. And, um, and Jared uh, uh, taught me a lot about that and also other people in our governance team have. Um, so it's something that I recommend uh, reading our, uh, other stuff at our street about, even when it comes to term limits. Um, I, my mind changed there and on some other issues as well, um, which is part of the reason I love my job, because I'm always learning. That's great. <laughs> and Jared, you wrote a separate piece for us, which sort of touches on con- Congress's role in reducing regulation. So recommend yeah. people read that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as we touched upon, again, there's another, the same issue plays off at the state level. We were talking about it earlier where state legislators a lot, a lot of times don't have the resources and the knowledge to be able to understand and effectively combat when industry groups try to smuggle through licensing proposals to them uh, because they're part-time legislators. A lot of them don't meet very often. They don't have very much staff. So it's really something that you see a, a lot uh, throughout uh, the country and it is really ultimately kind of a separation of powers uh, issue and kind of a capacity issue more than it is a, a big government versus small government issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so grow, grow the government a little bit in the short term to shrink it in the long term. That's, yeah, exactly. That's it. Yeah. No okay. one wants to shrink the government more than me and Shoshana, I can promise you. <laughs> it's just the, the strategy, the tactics you're using. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so let's go back to the Constitution for a second. Um, we all love the Constitution, National Affairs, our street. Um, Article 1 says, quote, no state shall, without the consent of Congress, enter into any agreement or compact with another state. Uh, so it seems like there that states can't have agreements among themselves, but we know that interstate compacts do exist and that can affect licensing. Uh, could you guys talk a bit about that? How does that um, work constitutionally and how effective are those? Yeah, so that provision seems pretty cut and dry the way it's laid out. The way it's been interpreted by the court over the years is as long states can band together and do compacts and agreements with each other as long as whatever they're doing together doesn't trump on what the federal government's doing. Uh, and so licensing compacts don't really. All they do is say that if Minnesota and Michigan and Wisconsin all agree that a nurse license from any of those states is equally valid in another state, that a nurse can travel across state lines and continue to practice and doesn't have to reapply for a license when she moves across state lines. Again, who does that help? Very transient populations that are moving a lot. Military spouses, military families, of course, is, is a great example of that. So we like a lot of people uh, that, that have studied occupational licensing feel like uh, compacts and interstate uh, reciprocity are a good thing and would help reduce the licensing burden for people that, that have licenses. And I don't think it's really something that, interf- that, that is 
trampling on, on, on states' rights or federal government's rights. I mean, it's the states voluntarily agreeing to do this. It's not being imposed from above. The federal mm-hmm. government's not coming in and saying, hey, make this compact. It's, they agree to it. And you see things like the Nurses' Compact. Not every state's joined it. It's over half now, which is great, and we hope that it continues to grow. But states do have the right to not do it. I don't think it's a great decision, but they have that right. So I think that that's uh, important to keep in mind that, co- that compacts are voluntary. Great. Um, so as a takeaway, what would you say would be your top three or top five things you'd like to see implemented right now? That's a good question. Yeah. At the federal government level, or are you talking about? Uh, we'll say federal, but that could affect state reforms yeah, as well, yeah, I guess, yeah, right? Yeah. So, yeah, whatever you guys are thinking. Yeah. You want to go first? Or you want to oh, yeah. I'll say I love the Rubio-Warren bill. It makes me happy because it's bipartisan, too, but I, I love that bill to fix the loans licensing issue. Um, that that would be really nice. It would help a lot of people who are struggling. Um, I think pretty much everything else we mentioned, too, like I love the Restoring Board Immunity Act and the Allow Act. New Hope got passed, so that's great. Um <laughs> I think also, especially um, the the federal government as an employer, those are a couple. I'll leave, uh, I think, six more, is it, to Jared? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's tough to choose amongst your children. Um, But, uh, yeah, no, I think that uh, we like all these ideas, obviously. I I think if you're looking for kind of the most most movement or bang for your buck, I think the Restoring Board Immunity Act would be important because so many of these state licensing boards are kind of operating as as economic cartels that don't really have appropriate oversight. Uh, it really is, people have started to look into these boards. Some of them don't even keep meeting minutes, like sometimes not even clear who's on the board, but they're operating under government auspices as government, uh, quasi-government entities. And so the more kind of oversight they can get, I think that's kind of really the way that, that you could start making a, a bigger impact uh, on, on a lot of the, the license and things is starting with with the boards themselves. Um, and I also really would like to just as a, a personal matter, like the military uh, issue to get some more attention, uh, not only military spouses, but a lot of military service members are trained in their service careers mm-hmm. in occupations that have a direct overlap to civilian occupations. A good example is, is an army medic uh, could easily be a nurse. They're more trained than nurses in some cases, but they can't then oftentimes when they're transitioning to civilian life after they retire, they oftentimes have to go through all the rigmarole and hoops of getting a nursing license. Engineers is another thing. Uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, obviously. Mechanics, uh, you know, different janitorial licenses, which are a thing in states. They have those in the military, too. So I think really helping uh, uh, the military families deal with licensing should be a priority. And there's been some federal stuff, and I think there could be more. I think that that is a real federal government role, this national defense has always been a core federal government role. And it really, licensing barriers impacts the ability of the military to attract and retain military talent. They've shown in surveys that it's like two thirds of military families, like their reenlistment decisions are directly impacted by their spouse's career prospects. And so if we're trying to raise a military, which is under the constitution, Congress's power to raise uh, an army under the army and Navy clause, uh, Navy and army under the army and Navy clause, that's really something the federal government could do. And so I think that's really helping people that, are, that have served our country, I think, is, is something that I really like to, to see done, too. So I think those are the kind of the biggest, uh, uh, the kind of bang for the buck type things that would be great to really have happen. But I think I speak for both of us in that any anything that they do, you know, whether it was the New, New Hope Act or, or whatever it might be, we're happy to see because this is an issue that they need to continue making incremental gains on because uh, it's one that's not going away and is impacting a lot of people. And so anything we can get, I think we'll take. Sure. 
Um, okay, so thanks again, guys, uh, for joining us here. We're going to close with a little bit of fun. Uh, we're going to ask you about a few things, and won't you say whether it's overrated or underrated? Nice. Um, I'll start with one policy-related. We'll keep it policy. Uh, the Congressional Regulation Office. What is that, and do you think it's overrated or underrated? I think that it's uh, underrated because uh, our street, uh, my boss, actually, <laughs> uh, our street's VP of Policy, Kevin Kosar, uh, and other co uh, our street person, now Philip Wallach, actually, were the ones that uh, I I think eventually, or originally floated the idea in uh, National Affairs Pages. Um, they had uh, kind of taken some prior work from other scholars uh, and adopted it. But uh, I think it's a great idea. Again, it helps Congress increase its capacity, and it helps it understand and process the regulations that uh, that agencies and the executive branch is promulgating, and again, could help rebalance that separation of powers, and I think ultimately have an effect of, of shrinking government overall. So I think uh, I'm biased, but I think it's a good idea. Yeah, same here. <laughs> Um, I'm biased as well, but um, but okay. I like that it causes fewer problems with the separation of powers, and I love reducing problems with the separation of powers. Yeah, it, it was an excellent idea, an excellent argument for yeah. it for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right, how about keeping a little bit policy still? States' rights, overrated, underrated? Oh. Uh, so this is actually funny. Um, our uh, uh, president of R Street, uh, Eli Lair, will often remind us that there's no such thing as states' rights. Um, you know, there's people's <laughs> rights. The states aren't like a thing, right? So um, there's certainly state prerogatives and state power. Um, and so, kind of, it depends on how kind of uh, semantic you want to get about about the wording of it. But I think that you know, as commonly understood, states' rights, the idea that there's certain things that the state should do that the federal government shouldn't. I think it's really important. I mean, I'm Madisonian myself, so I love separation of powers, and that's horizontal between Congress, judicial president, but that's also vertical between the federal governments and the states. And me and Shoshana really care about that, which is why we tried to really like put a lot of thought and work into our article to make sure that we weren't doing something just like, oh, the federal government should step in and preempt all licenses. And th that's not what we want to do because that, yes, that might help this problem temporary. But again, if you take that long-term view, that's probably worse for, for the trajectory of government overall. Definitely. I think it's underrated as, um, as you know, I mean, government doing stuff that it, it has no power to do. Like that poor commerce clause oh my gosh that poor thing is just like dying on the floor right now but then at the same time um i think it's overrated too often in the courts they're like oh courts can do what they want that's not what the constitution says and and again we're, we're both randy barnett ians <laughs> and um and i'm big on that um if if the states are violating rights and um and if the states aren't allowed to violate those rights courts have a duty there so kind of um underrated in the political branches Sorry, uh, uh, yeah, underrated in the political branches and overrated um, in the courts. Gotcha. It's a nice nuanced answer there. Okay. Uh, so you mentioned in your piece uh, in Texas, there's a requirement for eyebrow threaders. Uh, they need 750 hours of training at a cost of up to $9,000. Uh, that seems kind of outrageous, but also eyebrow threading in general, overrated, underrated. Um, overrated. You know, it's it's easy to tweeze. I have a good eyebrow uh, tweezer and I have bushy eyebrows if I don't tweeze. So I'm like, you know what? Just buy yourself a tweezer. I don't know why you need to go to the salon. So my personal opinion. Uh, I feel like it could be like, yeah, it could be underrated because my wife like makes me tweeze like my eyebrow hairs. And uh. if I got them braided, maybe I wouldn't have, I don't know how that would work, but it could be, it also could just throw her off. So I'm going to go underrated there. Nice. <laughs> okay. Last but not least, sloths. 
Overrated, Ooh. underrated. Underrated. Nobody <laughs> appreciates them enough. They are the best. They would make great pets if they weren't so hard to care for. Um, there's only one three-toed sloth in America, and that's at the Dallas Zoo. We need more huh. three-toed sloths in America. Three uh, Dallas is only one even trying. I, I actually, um, at risk of Shoshana hitting me, um, I would say overrated because Wrong. in the re- in the recent uh, premiere of The Bachelor, uh, one of the women dressed up as a sloth. She was one of the first people eliminated, so I guess The Bachelor thought they were overrated. Yeah, he's wrong. Um, <laughs> I'm not one for majoritarianism. I'm for what's right. So. Fair. All right, <laughs> All right I changed Principled my opinion. stance on sloths. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thank you both so much again for joining us uh, and sharing your research and ideas with us. Um, if you'd like to read Jared Shoshana's essay or other articles in National Affairs, Please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.